0: Welcome to episode five of No Coaster Needed. I'm Jacob McCourt. This show is about casual conversations between people of different ages, backgrounds, and from different walks of life. My hope is that the show feels like two friends catching up at a pub with a drink. It's a pub, so you don't need a coaster. Get it? The entirety of the first season of the show is about people with ties to the Rose City, people with ties to Windsor, Ontario. On today's show, I sat down with Eric Kuzmerczek. He is both the Director of Partnerships with WeTech Alliance and a Windsor City Councilor for Ward 7. Eric has a PhD from Vanderbilt University in the US and a Master's Degree in Government from the London School of Economics. Eric sits on multiple boards including the Essex Regional Conservation Authority, Transit Windsor and the Windsor Public Library. He is also a proud Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar. We recorded this episode at the University of Windsor's Epicentre. On the show, we talk about Eric's move to Canada from Poland, returning to Europe to study, interviewing for a Rotary International Scholarship halfway across the planet in the early 2000s, being in Nashville during the 2008 election, snakes, and all the anecdotes in between. This is No Coaster Needed, intimate conversations with incredible people. Born in Poland, mm-hmm. uh, and your family arrived in Canada about 30 years ago. Can you tell me what, how you ended up in Canada from Poland?
1: Yeah, so it's actually quite the tale, uh, quite the saga. And uh, my uh, my dad was is an engineer, and he uh, worked in a factory, a ball bearings factory that employed um, you know seven or eight thousand people. And uh, Poland at the time was, a, was under communist authoritarian rule, and he was actually a member of the Solidarity Trade uh, Union, which was the first free and independent trade union in the entire Eastern Bloc. And so uh, he was the chair of, um, the regional chair, I guess you could say, or the regional representative in his factory where he worked. And so, uh, 1981, uh, martial law was declared. Uh, The authoritarian regime cracked down on uh, the Solidarity Movement, cracked down on all the activists, the political activists, uh, the folks that tried to um, increase or expand freedoms in that country. And they really cracked down and they rounded them up. And I still remember, I was uh, three years old at the time and I'll never forget when the secret police came to our apartment door. Uh, in the middle of the night, it was about midnight or after midnight, and they uh, took my, uh, my dad away. So they arrested him. And for uh, a week or so, we really didn't know whether he was alive or he was dead. And uh, he'll tell you himself that he thought that he was being driven out to the forest. And, uh, and so uh, about a week later, uh, we found out where he was, that he was being detained. Uh, in a prison and he was detained there for a number of months and after he was released uh, he was uh, he was dubbed an enemy of the state I guess you could say and we still have the documentation for that and we were given sort of a, uh, we really weren't given a choice but we were given a one-way ticket out of the country and so uh, we had a choice actually between going to the US and going to Canada and we selected uh, we chose Canada and and uh, we wanted to come here and and luckily for us, we came to Canada as political refugees. We uh, we arrived at Pearson Airport in, in uh, 1983. I still remember stamping my passport and uh, or being allowed to stamp my own, my own passport, and and um, that's where it all began for us. And you know, my parents left um, left everything behind. Uh, they really risked everything uh, for my brother and I, my older brother Andrew and I.
0: And how old were you at the time when you uh, landed at Pearson?
1: Yep, so I was uh, not quite five years old. Uh, and my brother was eight years old at the time, my older brother, and and that's when the advan- uh, adventure began. And, and like I said, I, I give my my parents a lot of credit, and and you know they packed up their entire lives into uh, two big um, sort of uh, not suitcases but uh, two big containers, and they said goodbye to their parents, they said goodbye to their family, and good goodbye to the country that they had known, and and uh, and they came here. And really, that's a story um, that we hear quite often in, in Windsor. And how did you end up in Windsor from Toronto? Well, actually, uh, the way I understand the story, um, originally the government had intended for us to head to Winnipeg and uh, the peg. It's really cold there. <laughs> it's really cold there. <laughs> and, uh, and I think what ended up happening, we had some family uh, in Toronto, um, or friends and, and family in Toronto that had come here before us. And so at the airport, again, we were intended to go on to Winnipeg. We kind of flipped the coin. And, and really decided, okay, well, let's, let's try to make it here. Let's plant the flag here. And, and uh, so we lived in Toronto for, uh, for about nine months in Scarborough. Uh, at the time, my dad was looking for work. My parents were going to, um, to school at George Brown College to learn English. And, uh, and my dad was working uh, part-time, found part-time work just laying tile and, and flooring and just to make ends meet. And uh, and so he was looking for work, and uh, you know, as an engineer, uh, there was somebody pointed him to Windsor. There was an opportunity there. He had a job interview lined up, and uh, he ended up getting a job in a company called Lamb Technicon, which was at the time one of the largest machine tool companies uh, in the world, actually. And and they had a factory, uh, a couple plants, one on Jefferson and one on Eugenie. And he got a job, and and uh, I, I, I again, I remember him driving his. Uh, his brown Pontiac Le Mans, beat up Pontiac Le Mans, back from Windsor to Toronto, or excuse me, back, yeah, from Windsor to Toronto to pick us up, to let us know that we'll be moving, that he's found a job, and and uh, next thing I knew, we were in our uncle's um, car, large. I don't know what he had, a Cadillac. I don't know what he had, but there was about eight or nine of us in that car going down the four hundred one, moving down to Windsor. And, uh, and that's where it all began. We, we found, um, we found housing, we found an apartment um, at, uh, or a townhouse, I should say, in Polonia Park, where uh, a lot of folks, a lot of Polish folks uh, moved. It was their first home and, and, in Windsor and, and that's where we were for the first, uh, first number of years. And what, what did your mum do?
0: You said so, your dad was an engineer.
1: Yep. So actually my parents met, uh, they met when uh, my mom was working um, as an office assistant uh, in the administrative uh, uh, administration, I guess you could say, um, at the ball bearing factory in Poland. That's how they met. And then when we came to Canada, uh, my mom was for um, for a long period of time was a stay at home mom and, and uh, took care of my brother and I. And. Um, But then she ended up getting a job uh, in Windsor. She ended up getting a job at the Polish credit union, St. Casimir, St. Stanislaus Credit Union on Ottawa Street, uh, which was really, you know, that street, there was a lot of, uh, there was the church was was, was, um, in that area. You had the bank. Uh, you had a bakery. Um, you had other stores. It was a really tight-knit Polish community. It really was part of the heart of, of the Polish community, our real meeting place. So she was there for close to 20 years.
0: Did you often have gatherings uh, in, in those spaces that you'd identified before?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, our lives were, were, were really tied in with, our, with the Polish community here. And, and uh, really, the Polish community um, helped us out tremendously, you know, in terms of getting settled here, finding friends, finding support, um, you know everything from directing us to where the dentist office is the doctor's office helping us with banking things like that helping us get settled helping us get furniture uh, all of those things I mean it really was um, you know and, and again I know this is a story it's the same across different um, uh, different uh, countries and nationalities is uh, really a lot of times the church was really the anchor that helped you get integrated in your community your local church and uh, and so we're, we're forever grateful to that and uh, my dad um, was a, uh, set an example for all of us. He was a, a really big believer in, in volunteerism and public service. And so in addition to working as an engineer, he, he was the, uh, the president of the, the Polish school. So a lot of people may ask, well, what the heck's a Polish school? Well, uh, f- you know, if you're Polish or I'm sure if you're Serbian or Croatian or Macedonian living in Windsor, you went to your version of the Polish school usually on Saturday mornings. Uh, to sort of maintain your, your Polish heritage, your link to the country, your, your language. And so he was the president of the Polish school. He was also uh, the president of the, uh, the Polonia Centre, which was the big cultural centre uh, in the community. And he was the chair of the parish council. So he really felt very strongly that um, he owed a lot uh, to Canada, and he owed a great deal to Windsor. And the best way that he knew how to give back is really to volunteer in the community and 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 uh, and and public service. And, and again, I think he really set that example for my brother and I early on. Given that you seem like a very close knit community and family, that
0: must have been really hard for you to leave Windsor to go to Carleton for journalism, right?
1: I see you did your homework. <laughs> yeah, so. Um I always loved writing and I always felt that that was something that I was pretty good at and uh, and so I applied um, I applied to to a number of schools and and got into the journalism program at Carleton University and um, you know one of my role models was Anna Maria Tremonti from the CBC in in Windsor and I wanted to be a foreign correspondent like she was and uh, and so you know journalism was the place to go And had a fantastic time at Carleton University did a double major in in, uh, journalism and history and I but I always knew that I would be involved in politics in some way I just figured that it would be in in covering it uh, and writing about it Um, and uh, and so uh, that's you know around our kitchen table as well just to backtrack a little bit obviously with my with my dad's experience uh, in terms of fighting the communist dictatorship and, and in terms of fighting, you know, standing up for rights and, and standing up for, you know, again, the free and, and independent uh, um, uh, union, trade union. Again, he set another example as well, too, and and around our kitchen table, we talked a lot about politics. Politics was something you talked about, you discussed, you know, what's happening in Ottawa, what's happening at Queen's Park, you know, what's happening in your community, what are some of the important policy issues that are happening, you know, what's what's taking place nationally or nationally and internationally as well, too. So. In, in our family, we we often talked and discussed politics around the kitchen table. It's just what you did. We were immersed in it, I guess you could say.
0: Was it just that kind of immersion that kind of made you shift? Or was there something that you, in your time at Carleton that also made you say, hey,
1: this is this is what I want to do? Well, like I said, I always wanted to write about it. And uh, and I always wanted to write about it. I always wanted to, to be an, I was always an observer of politics. I always wanted to write about it. That's why I went to, uh, to uh, Carleton. And uh, I ended up doing a master's degree in, in London, England. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to get uh, a small scholarship there. And uh, my parents also uh, took out a pretty big loan to help me get there as well, too. And And I just figured if I wanted to cover international politics, I needed to have some international experience. And I thought that was critical. and. Uh, having that international experience traveling to, to london to england uh, to take to do those studies i thought was absolutely critical if i wanted to uh, again get a job as uh, working for you know maybe the globe and mail or or the national post or one of those and working as a foreign correspondent uh, i needed to have that international experience and so i ended up studying um, i ended up studying european politics uh, at uh, at the london school of economics and and you know this was, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, and and it was true then in terms of um, in terms of getting that international experience. But it's even more true today. You know, the message that I would have to to students and to and to graduates is uh, try to get as much international experience as you possibly can. Immerse yourself in as many cultural experiences as you can, and not just traveling for a week here or a week there. If you can do a co-op, an internship, if you could do something like that. Um, it's it's um, I think it's absolutely critical these days beyond
0: your studies at uh, the London School of Economics You also studied and did a master's in Poland
1: if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep. Yeah. so I uh, I was very fortunate to receive a uh, what's called the Rotary Am- Ambassadorial Scholarship uh, from the Rotary organization. Uh, Windsor Roseland was the uh, was the sponsor and um and it provided a, a, a scholarship for me to do a, a one-year master's program in Eastern European politics uh, in, uh, in Poland and in, in Krakow. And uh, it was an interesting story, actually, how that how that came about. Um, so the, the actual process uh, to get the scholarship is it had three or four different parts to it. You know, you submit your application and... You make it to the next round, and I think you submit some other uh, documentation or or an essay. And then the final round of the application is an interview process. So you actually have to be present physically um, at an interview. You're interviewed by a panel of Rotary members. And uh, so I had made it to the final round of that interview. And the problem was, um, was the interviews were scheduled at a time when I was actually in Finland, On another program sponsored by the government of Finland called the foreign correspondence program so the Finnish government invited uh, recent graduates and young journalists uh, for a month to basically explore the country of Finland it was amazing and you were exposed to uh, the economics the culture the history the politics of Finland and you traveled all around you traveled north of the Arctic circle and again it was amazing you got a chance to meet with CEOs and politicians and and whatnot and and community leaders there so I was in Finland at the time uh, right when the interviews were being held and they were being held in a hotel in Detroit and I was um, (laughs) I was sort of bummed because here's an opportunity I made it to the final round of the of this ambassadorial scholarship it's a huge scholarship huge opportunity and I didn't think I, I, I could be there. What year is this, just so we understand technologically? No. Yeah, 2001. Okay. Yeah, 2001. And uh, and so what ended up happening is I, um, I got the idea of if I couldn't be there physically, maybe I could be there virtually, I guess you could say. And so I, I asked um, one of the Rotary members if I could look into the possibility of actually joining the being present at the interview via teleconference uh, from from Finland. Now, at the time, there was no such thing as Skype, didn't exist, and teleconferencing equipment was very expensive, and really the only companies that had it were, were companies with very, very deep pockets mm-hmm. and that were sort of technologically advanced. Like a Cisco, for example, like, right? Like a Cisco, exactly. So companies like that, it was very, very, um, it, was, it was a technology that just wasn't prevalent. And the, I give credit to the rotary, um, the panel, because they, you know, this wasn't something that they were familiar with, but, you know, they said, sure, you know, if, if you can set this up, we'll, we'll entertain, we'll entertain that possibility, but it's up to you to set it up. So I called a company called Nokia, um, which is a Finnish company, but they have headquarters in, in Toronto and in Ajax. And for those that, maybe don't know nokia used to be the largest producer of hand handheld cell phones in the world they used to have like 80 percent market share of cell phones in the world huge telecommunications company huge global leader in smartphones uh and uh um and so i called them up i told them my situation and the gentleman on the other line at nokia in canada said well let me just let me look into it and i'll call you back and see what we can do and i honestly didn't expect anything and uh, the next day, I got a phone call from Nokia and they said, okay, um, we'll let you use the teleconferencing equipment uh, at Nokia headquarters in Helsinki, Finland. And because it's on a Saturday, we'll actually bring in a, one of our employees to help you set up the, uh, the stuff. And so we're good to go. All you got to do is make sure that you have the uh, receiving equipment to be able to receive the transmission on the Detroit side.
0: Sounds like a whole other problem that you have to solve now. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> exactly. So I called. Uh, I called the hotel, the Double Tree in, in Detroit, and uh, I asked them. I said, "Do you guys have teleconferencing equipment?" And they said, "No." What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to actually, you know, and I asked them, you know, would you like to have it? And they said, "Sure." And uh, and so my next job mission was to basically look around in Detroit and find somebody who can install it in the hotel.
0: So wait, you sold them on telecommunications equipment?
1: Yeah. So they were like, yeah, we'll install it. You just have to find it and pay for it. Oh, you have to find Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. So they didn't, <laughs> no, no, no. So long story short, I, I, again, I flipped through the Yellow Pages, I think it was the Yellow Pages at the time, and tried to find folks that could do it. And um, a lot of them were, it was very expensive. I mean, you're looking at $15,000 uh, to install it, you know, labor and and the equipment. So it was beyond anything that I could do. And um, finally, you know, at the, at my wits end, I came across, um, a gentleman who, who had a company. I told him my story and, uh, and he said, and he says, you know, I'm a big believer in, in helping young people. And, and, uh, this seems like an amazing opportunity. I would hate for you to miss it. I'll charge you for the equipment. I won't charge you for labor and I'll give you it. I'll give you the equipment at, at wholesale price. Uh, it was still a couple thousand dollars and, um, uh, it was a little bit more than that, I think. Um, and luckily, um, my parents said, you know what? This is a bet we're willing to, to make, and we'll, we'll float you the, the money. And, and so next thing we know, we had it installed at the Doubletree Hotel. So fast forward, you know, a month later or, or thereabouts, and I'm in Finland. I'm in Helsinki, and I arrive at the headquarters of this uh, multi-billion-dollar technology company, technology leader in the world. Uh, they let me in. The employees there. They walked me into the boardroom. It was a beautiful boardroom, and uh, and I sat down. They fired up the equipment, and the next thing I knew, I was I was face to face with a panel of uh, Rotarians being interviewed for the um, uh, for the uh, the Rotary scholarship, and it was um, it, it was sort of our our it was almost like a lunar landing moment. For both of us for both sides rotary had never done something like that and you know rotary has a reputation of of being you know of of its membership being you know a lot of folks that are retired for example and and whatnot and here they were embracing this bridge of technology that was connecting them with this young person um on the cusp of of having the opportunity of a lifetime and they embraced it. And I give them so much credit for embracing this new technology, serving as a bridge before anyone else even knew about this technology. And and again, I I remember doing the interview um, and after it was uh, completed, I remember walking out of Nokia. I remember sitting on a grassy kind of mound or hill on the Nokia campus, um, looking up at the sky and just feeling pretty amazing and at the opportunity there and at the experience and uh, and there was a small i think marathon I actually just ran by vinalkiad <laughs> campus at that time as well too it was incredible and then a couple days later i got the notification from uh, rotary that at, uh, that i was lucky enough to get the scholarship and and um yeah
0: you're listening to no coaster needed this is a conversation with eric usmerchek He is the Director of Partnerships with WeTech Alliance and a Windsor City Councilor for Ward 7. If you like what you've heard so far, consider sending it to a friend. It helps a lot. Now, before we move on to Eric's current role, I ask him about his hike across Poland. But I wanna talk about how you got back to North America Hmm. um, from Europe. You ended up studying at Vanderbilt, you did your PhD there. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I ask that, you also hiked across, um, you hiked across Poland. Yeah. Correct.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, as a high school student, it was in my—I think it was grade twelve, the summer of grade twelve, if I'm not mistaken. I was a, um, I was at—I was a Saint Joe's uh, Saint Joseph's High School uh, laser, and um, there was a priest that came to our house, um, and he was a priest, but he could have easily been a commando. <laughs> He's just. <laughs> This guy was just built. Um, I'm not gonna say what he was built like, but he was just like I said. Was, yep. Yeah. And uh, and he every year he basically led. He did two things. One, he led a group of young people, um, a group of you know 10 or 15 young people up into the mountains um, in southeastern Poland, into the Carpathian Mountains, and and sort of led them uh, on like a on a week long sort of excursion through the mountains and really put them through their paces and so he invited uh invited me to to do that participate in that um i was not a very athletic kid and i wasn't particularly fit and um so that was that was interesting and then and then the conversation so he was at our house he was staying he was staying at yeah. our house and, and at the dinner table he, he made that offer and then he also said um he also said "What what does the rest of your summer look like and And I said, well, I don't really have anything planned. And he said, well, why don't, you know, do you want to go on a walk with me? (laughs) And I said, well, what do you you mean? He says, well, every year we organize this pilgrimage across Poland, which is about 700 kilometers in 18 days. (laughs) I almost fell off my chair just listening to that. And, uh, but it was intriguing. You know, I I told him I'd sleep on it. And the next day I I thought about it and none of my friends had had ever done anything like that. So it sounded like a cool experience. And next thing i knew a couple months later bags were packed and um and again i spent the week in the mountains um he really put us through our paces you know basically (laughs) running up these huge uh huge mountainsides up and down and um and having really great conversations about you know things like culture and history and and social issues and things like that it was a wonderful experience and then uh, a couple weeks later i was found myself on the uh, uh coast the baltic sea coast at the start of a uh, what is a pilgrimage, um, again that lasted seven hundred kilometers over eighteen days. So we walked from the north of Poland to the south of Poland. Biggest thing you learned from all of that walking? <laughs> oh, a couple things. Make sure you have the right pair of underwear because it's <laughs> it's fifty kilometers every day, and and that's absolutely critical. Um, so that uh, you have to take care of your feet for sure, but. It was amazing. You had um, so just to sort of give the context a little bit. Every year, about two hundred thousand people from across Poland uh, leave their homes and they and they go on this pilgrimage to uh, the city of Chmielnicki, which is sort of the holiest shrine in, in Poland, um, sort of like the Hockey Hall of Fame in Canada. And um, and so they walk from various places. You know, some of them, you know, they'll walk fifty kilometers. Some will walk a hundred kilometers. Um, we happen. I happened to sign up for the longest one, which was 700 kilometers. And so you end up walking, every day you wake up and you start marching at 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, you're walking through uh, forests, you're walking through highways, you're walking through uh, next to lakes and rivers, um, you're walking through, you name it, um, you know, just open fields through small towns, big towns, rural areas. And... Um, and you basically walk and about 50 kilometers a day. And what's kind of neat is at the end of the day, you you march into a town and uh, people almost greet you as if you were um, you were a soldier in a you know in a in a in a liberating army. I guess you could say uh, they you know they take it pretty seriously and and uh, and they uh, you you gather in a you know in the central market, let's say, or the market square and. People just invite you into their homes complete strangers will invite you into your homes for the night and and um, and there's a there's a Polish saying domu, um, buk w domu," which means if there's a guest in the house God is in the house and and so they really you walk through these rural towns a lot of them are um, again you have homes that have thatched roofs um, there's no indoor plumbing uh, there's a water well that's where you dry your water and you take your bath and and yet these folks would invite you into their homes and they would put this amazing spread on the table. And um, and then you would basically, when they found out that I was from Canada, and they would usually stay up till three in the morning and ask a thousand questions. What's it like being in Canada? What are the winters like? Tell us about hockey. What's the food like? Um, you know, what's it like going to school there? It was amazing. And so... In our group, we had, I think we had about 200 people in, in, in our group that walked that 700 kilometers. And all ages, young people, um, you had young people, you had, you had professionals, you had students, you had folks in their 80s uh, that were walking the entire distance. Um, and they were there for different reasons. Um, some were there because, you know, they, they were looking maybe for inspiration. Um, some were there because they wanted to connect Uh, you know to God and some were there because um, they were um, facing a a huge challenge Um, some of them were sick and they were terminal and this was sort of their um, their final walk I guess you could say and so it was um, it was an incredible experience it really was an amazing experience just talking to people and you're you're walking with folks over 700 kilometers your bones hurt (laughs) your feet hurt, you're thirsty, um, you have dust in your mouth, but you really connect with folks on, on a level that is just um, is just incredible. So let's talk about how
0: you made it back to the region. Mm-hmm. So you made it back to the region, um, if I'm understanding correctly, by doing your thesis in your PhD at Vanderbilt yeah. about the Great
1: Lakes. Yeah, so, um, so after my, I spent about two and a half years in Europe and I studied there, and I also worked for uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs there. Uh, at, a, at actually, at an incredible time, uh, it was a time when when uh, ten Eastern European countries, Poland being one of them, uh, countries like uh, the Czech Republic, Hungary, had joined um, or had passed a referendum to join the European Union. And so I was there working for the Department of Foreign Affairs at a time when. Uh, the continent was being reunited there's a reunification of europe after after 60 years and it was a tremendous it was just a, a tremendous tremendous uh, experience uh, to be there uh, my roommate was a german roommate and uh, he was the first one to text me and to say you know basically saying um welcome back and welcome into the to the family of europe and and that was kind of a, a really touching moment and um so anyway after i finished there and um i ended up getting a, a scholarship to go to Vanderbilt University which is in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh um and I studied uh, European politics. There was a professor there who was um who was a uh an expert in uh, European politics, a uh, leading scholar and ended up getting a a scholarship to work there and study under him. Uh and his name was uh, uh Professor Donald Hancock. And I uh, spent four wonderful years in Nashville. Uh, it was wonderful. And so, you know, I traded in the, the snows of Northern Europe and, and, and Ottawa, I guess you could say, and, and found myself in, in the south of the U.S. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And it was an amazing experience for so many different reasons. But again, I happened to find myself there at a time when history was shifting beneath my feet. And at the time, studying politics in the U.S., in nashville when the first black president was elected was absolutely unbelievable and as someone who again is a student of history and politics having that opportunity was um, was absolutely unreal and you know keep in mind nashville was one of the epicenters of the civil rights movement it was one of the birthplaces of the civil rights movement you had the lunch counter sit-ins which were in nashville and, uh, and so being in Nashville um, at the time when when the first, US, the first black president was elected was uh, was something I'll never forget. Do you remember
0: exactly where you were when it happened?
1: Oh. It's a tough question. It's been some years. Yeah, it's been some years. I'm, uh, it's a good question. I was, well, glued in front of a television for sure, um, glued in front of a television. I, my brother and I, uh, the entire process from the primaries all the way to the election— would almost be in, in constant email, text, or phone contact talking about um, this election, you know, and uh, sort of digesting it and dissecting it. And and it was really cool um, to be able to experience that entire process with my brother as well, too. So uh, we were both really, really deeply um, engaged in, in that process. So again, like I said, what an amazing experience to be in the U.S. at, at, that, uh, at that time. You know, now, um, you know, it's it's uh, you know, uh, again, you you'll never be able to say that again that you were actually there when when that sort of happened. It's amazing experience. So that was two thousand eight that he was mm-hmm. uh, elected. He started in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. You moved back to the area in twenty ten, correct? Yep. So I finished my I finished my uh, doctorate in twenty ten, and uh, yep, uh, it was focused on um, what was focused on environmental cooperation. Uh, between local governments around the Great Lakes Basin. And what was neat is, I, I took, there was a lot, in Europe, uh, the level of regional cooperation between local governments there is far, far deeper and far more advanced. And so I took what was happening in Europe and basically asked the question, is this happening in, in the Great Lakes region? To what degree and to what extent? And so that sort of brought me, um, brought me back to, uh, to here, I spent a little bit of time here. But when I graduated, I graduated in 2010. It was the worst recession in North America in 50 years. And so after I finished my doctorate, um, I couldn't find a job. There were no jobs available. Uh, Universities in the U.S. weren't hiring. Universities in Canada weren't hiring. The government of Canada had a hiring freeze. And, uh, And so... Like I said, I must have sent out hundreds of applications. And uh, I ended up catching a job working on the Herb Gray Parkway, um, working on their, sort of in their environmental team, catching species at risk snakes and transplanting snakes and species at risk plants from the construction footprint Mm -hmm. of the Herb Gray Parkway. You weren't doing that yourself, but you were consulting on that, right? I was doing it. Come on. Yeah. Snakes? Yeah, snakes. So... Um, <laughs> I, I remember my first day, uh, again, on the Herb Grey Parkway before it was even built. Um, I, again, just to sort of backtrack, you have to understand that before the, the construction of the actual parkway, that area around Ojibwe was like the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and I got a chance to see it, you know, sort of go in depth into it. You know, the Spring Garden sea, and some of those natural areas that most people will never experience or never see and they will never see it in you because it's no longer there but so i remember my first or second day there um it was in the summer it's like 40 degrees outside i was wearing uh, long khaki pants you know a cotton shirt long sleeve uh, doused in mosquito repellent and uh i remember standing in the middle of the field looking up at the sky and just saying you know what did i where did i go wrong you know what did i do i have a phd and yeah. this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. And 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 you know, it's it's not how I imagined things kind of ending up. And here I was. And and um, and so you know, again, it had nothing to do with anything I had ever studied. It Had nothing to do with anything I've ever. I spent the last ten years preparing for. Um, having said that, it ended up being a huge blessing. And it was it was it was just a huge blessing. And. I ended up spending a number of months working with some of the most knowledgeable and passionate biologists and botanists in North America. These guys and gals—they they knew everything about um, you know both the plant life, about the animal life in the area. They were so excited to share new knowledge. It was amazing. It was walking through every day from seven in the morning till you know sometimes five, six, seven o'clock at night. We would be walking through a garden of Eden with some of those knowledgeable and passionate biologists and botanists. And it was an incredible experience. And after spending, you know, a couple of years um, holed up in, a, in front of a computer writing a doctoral dissertation, um, it felt good going for a walk. And uh, I learned a lot. It was an amazing experience. I'm forever grateful for it. I'm forever grateful for the people that were there. They just accepted me and took me under their wings. And again, I'll never forget the first time that I found, a, you know, like a four-foot-long uh, Eastern fox snake, and uh, had to actually grab it with my hands because that's what you had to do. Your job was to basically take these. Are they poisonous? Those snakes? No, they're not. They're not poisonous. They but, do bite, though. Uh, they nibble, uh, <laughs> but they have a rattle that that's or, or they have a tail that simulates a rattle. So it kind of freaks you out if you're not used to it. And I'll never forget the first time. It was early in the morning. There was this mist that was rising from the uh, from the floor of the forest, and and uh, and I'll remember. Um, So what you'd do is you'd flip these boards that were placed uh, the evening before and the snakes would often go underneath the boards because they would look for warmth and and shelter. And, And so when I, it was myself and my partner and my partner, there was a fork in the road. So my partner took the left lane. I took the right and there was a board there and I flipped it and there was this orange, copper colored Eastern fox snake coiled up and its tail started moving. And I remember my first instinct, my heart started racing. And I remember thinking to myself, looking at the snake and saying, okay, buddy, you don't see me and I don't see you and let's just call it a day and and I'll move on. Is that what you're supposed to do? (laughs) No, you're supposed to to, uh, crouch down and you're supposed to put your palm on the snake gently and you're supposed to take it, pick it up and put it inside a cotton bag that you have slung on your shoulder and that's what i did. So i had that moment of hesitation and and i i said no, i got to do it. This is too important. And i reached down and i picked up the snake and it coiled around my my arm a couple times and put it in the cotton bag and away we went. So your your career tends to
0: oscillate between, you know, nature with the walks when you were in high school, yeah. you know, working for the government, coming back to nature. And then you come back to technology with your current job at WeTech as the Director Mm -hmm. of Programs here, correct? Yep, Director of Partnerships now, yep. And uh, you work on a few big programs. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanna talk about two in particular. First, uh, first robotics Mm -hmm.
1: is a national program, correct? Or is it a global program? It's now a global program. Uh, It was actually started in the US about 30 years ago in New Hampshire, uh, and it was started by a, a serial inventor Um, Dean Kamen and he was the inventor of the Segway. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Segway and and many other things and uh, uh, And he found a need to get more people interested in science technology engineering and mathematics. He really saw that as a as the future and basically um, I remember uh, being introduced um, By one of our summer students when I was working at WeTech when I first started and my job was actually to develop programs for young people that help get them into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, the so-called STEM fields. And one of our uh, summer uh, interns, Bradley, showed me a video of a tournament in uh, in Tennessee, actually. It was called the Smoky Mountains Regional, where a team from uh, um, LaSalle, the uh, sandwich Saber Bites, at the time, the only high school robotics team competing in, in FIRST Robotics, and they absolutely cleaned up. They won the tournament. They were the best team. They beat out, you know, 40 other U.S. based teams. And as soon as I saw that video, I said, "We got to build this here." So we got to work on bringing FIRST Robotics and growing it in Windsor and Essex. And just to give you an idea, what these students do is over the over a period of six weeks, they dream up, design, and build these 120-pound robots that are very sophisticated. They do a number of tasks. Uh, f- throwing frisbees, climbing ten-foot steel pyramids, you name it, and uh, and they have to compete uh, against other um, other robots inside an arena. So a lot of folks refer to it as General Motors meets LeBron James. It's really neat. That year was ba- was it basketball? That it was day- basketball. The first year was a basketball yeah. uh, it was a basketball game. So when we began working with FIRST Robotics, we had one high school team and one grade school team competing in Windsor, Essex. We now have 19 high school teams competing. We have probably over 50 grade school Lego robotics teams. We host one of the largest, if not the largest, robotics, high school robotics tournaments in Canada. And uh, and again, we have built over 30 partnerships with the university, the college, with companies like Centerline, Valiant, Rico International, Brave Controls, the list goes on. This is about This is about an all hands on deck approach to education where we bring industry and community stakeholders off the sidelines and into the classroom. And uh, it's been a tremendous success. And we're now excited because the World Championships will be held in Detroit um, starting in April for three years in a row. And that's going to bring the best of the best from around the world. And you're going to have 40,000 people there. Taking part. So it's like winning the Super Bowl three years in a row for this region.
0: So, the other program that I want to ask you about uh, is Hacking Health. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that program? So, Hacking Health is actually a global movement that was started in Canada. And Hacking Health brings together uh, about 250 people um, at each event. Uh, half are from the healthcare sector, so doctors, nurses, hospital administrators. And half are from the tech sector—graphic designers, software engineers—but also business people, investors. And over the course of a weekend, they uh, they team up, they dream up, they build uh, tech solutions to healthcare challenges. And when we first heard about Hacking Health, again, we knew that it was in it was a, it was a movement that was growing and spreading around the world. And we actually approached our sister organization, TechTown Detroit. And asked them if they wanted a partner on. On would then be the first ever global or cross border, I should say, a uh, uh, hacking health. And that's where hacking health Windsor Detroit, our chapter was formed. It's the first cross border chapter. So we held our first event in uh, in Tech Town at Detroit, huge success. And now we uh, alternate venues: once in Detroit, once in Windsor. And so uh, in April, a few weeks from now, we're gonna have we're gonna host it at St Clair College in the uh, Dr. John A. Strasser Student Life Center. We expect over 250 participants. And uh, we have three uh, incredible, we have a number of incredible sponsors, um, but to highlight a few of them, um, Green Shield Canada is on board. They're sponsoring a design challenge focused on health and wellness. And uh, Afria actually is a medical cannabis, cannabis company out of Leamington, one of the largest in North America and they're sponsoring a design challenge focused on uh, medical cannabis. And so what ends up happening is, these we, we draw these creative and collaborative people into a room on a weekend, they work together, and they come up with real solutions, real ideas on how to improve healthcare. Some of those ideas are ones that could be adopted in the hospital, but some of those are ones that can be actually taken to market. And we've had companies, um, one of the companies that WeTech works with is a company that was actually founded at Hacking Health. Was a company called Medi Meals that basically uh, provides sort of personalized. Uh, it's a it's a personalized food ordering app uh, that is geared for hospitals and long-term care homes and um, and uh, we're working with them to actually help them get to market as well. So a number of great ideas have come out of this uh, this initiative. Final set of
0: questions. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to your job with WeTech, mm-hmm. you're also the Ward Seven Counselor for the City of Windsor. Yes. Um, you're entering your final year. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you decided to run for that?
1: Well, first of all, it's one of the best experiences, if not the best experience of my life, and uh, there's not a day that goes by that I'm just not, that I'm not grateful, and I I am so grateful for this experience. It's been absolutely a blessing. And uh, um, yeah, you know, I I remember uh, the first time around when I ran, uh, Percy Hadfield was the, was the counselor for Ward seven. And, um, he got a promotion, he got elected, uh, I guess you could say, uh, promoted to Queen, Queen's Park, if that's you know, how you want to put it, uh, as a member of provincial parliament. And there was a vacant seat. And, uh, and I remember there again, like I said, four years ago or five years ago, a job market was terrible. And, and, uh, and I just said, why not? Why not give it a shot? And, um, and, you know, I like walking, and I had experience, you know, doing a lot of walking in, in the past. And why not apply it to this? So, I ended up knocking door to door and and talking to a lot of great people, and and um, and I ended up winning. Actually, I winning uh, winning the election. I think by 30 votes. It was a very close vote, and um, it was an incredible experience, and I'll never forget it. Um, there were I think 12 polls in um, in Ward Seven, and my opponent and I were tied going into the 12th poll. I was tied. it was dead even with one poll remaining in terms of the vote count. And I'll never forget being in my um, my uncle and my aunt's house and the family was there and volunteers and friends were all there. And um, it was an incredible experience. It was just elation when the results were finally announced. And Again, looking back, what an, what a, it's been an incredible experience, and I would recommend to anybody to throw their hat in the ring, whether it's council, whether it's as a trustee, whether it's sitting on a board, whether it's um, setting your sights even higher for provincial or federal uh, politics, throw your hat in the ring. It's an incredible experience. You'll learn how to swim uh, very quickly, but it is an absolute and valuable experience.
0: And something that you do that uh, probably takes a lot of work is that you publish all of your votes mm-hmm. on your website. And I think believe you're the only city councillor in the city yes. that does that. Do you, do you feel like yes. it, you get a return from that? It's a lot of it work is. to do that.
1: Uh, it is a lot of work. Uh, it is so worth it. And uh, for me, uh, transparency and accountability are, are A1. And uh, you know, for me, the, the great value for that is A, the residents know exactly where I stood on an issue. So... You know, a lot of times when you read, um, when you read sometimes comments in, in papers or, or if you hear maybe, you know, a, a writer or a journalist uh, cover an item, uh, they may not get the, the story um, or they might, um, you know, may not get the whole story, I guess you could say. So this allows me to fill in some of the gaps, uh, maybe correct the record at times. Um, and folks know exactly how I voted and that's important to me they, I want them to know exactly how I voted on an issue more importantly on a lot of the key issues I also provide an explanation I explain what was my thinking in voting a certain way and so I've had folks coming up to me saying you know counselor I I um, I don't agree with your vote but I know where you where you're coming from and uh, and I see now I see you know why you voted the way you did so even if we don't agree I w- Folks come up to me and they appreciate knowing where I'm coming from, and, and for me, the only things that ever go into a vote, um, the only things that ever go into a vote, and that should go into a vote, is do your homework, consult with residents, deliberate with your colleagues, and, and that's it. It's, very, it's a very simple recipe. There should be no politics. There should be no partisanship. There should be no agenda. It's very simple. And the beauty of local politics is you get to stand on your record and your record only. Um, you know, you're not part of a party. You're not partisan. Nobody's telling you in the morning what you're going to say that day in session. You are independent. You have that independence. But with that comes a responsibility. And, and again, having those that voting record online Having that transparency and accountability, I think, is important.
0: Once again, you're embracing technology, right?
1: You're embracing technology. And this I'm looking forward to the day where this is standard, where this is simply standard operating procedure. Every resident will be able to go online and know exactly how their counselor voted on an issue. And uh, and like I said, I think that's 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 something that I think we'll see uh, around the corner. I hope we do. Final question. Sure. You have your job at WeTech mm-hmm. full-time.
0: Mm-hmm. You are a counselor with the city of Windsor. Uh, it's a lot of things. You sit
1: on boards as well. I'm sure. Yes. How do you manage your time? <laughs> uh, so there's not a lot of time. Um, there's not a lot of time, but having said that there's a lot of gratitude and you never take anything for granted. And, uh, it's been such an incredible journey. Uh, and, you know, I have an opportunity to work with some amazing people and to meet some amazing people. Uh, that's whether it's folks that are, on the administration within within City Hall, whether it's my council colleagues, whether it's the folks that I meet um, uh, sitting on boards and volunteers that sit on different boards, whether it's the Windsor Public Library Board, Transit Windsor, uh, I was on the health unit, Essex Regional Conservation Authority, the planning committee, and then the folks that you get a chance to meet on a day-to-day basis in your neighborhood that you otherwise maybe never would have got a chance to speak to. Uh, it's amazing. And so... There's never, there's never really been a time where I look at it and I say, oh, you know, there's not enough time in the day. It's you feel gratitude. Yeah, you're tired a little bit, and you, and you appreciate maybe, uh, you know, some of the, the odd weekend where you don't have something to do on a Saturday or someplace to be or something to read, um, and maybe you appreciate uh, an evening uh, where you get a chance to just kick your feet up and, and watch a hockey game and have a beer. Those are those are rare moments. <laughs> But um, A, you appreciate those moments all the same, but you're so grateful for the opportunity that you've been given. And I, that's why, again, I just want to encourage anybody to, um, to, everybody to really throw their hat in the ring, run for a public office. Uh, public service is, um, again, like I said, it's an incredible experience that pays you back a thousandfold. Thank you so much for your time. Jacob, this has been great. And uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for taking this time. And uh, yeah, this is a great, uh, great show. So thank you.
0: And that's our show. A big thank you to Eric Kuzmierczyk. He is the Director of Partnerships with WeTech Alliance and a Windsor City Councilor for Ward 7. If you wanna follow Eric or see his full Windsor City Council voting record, you can visit his website at eric.ca, I-R-E-K.ca. You can also follow him on Twitter at I-R-E-K underscore K. Eric mentioned two projects. The first was Hacking Health Windsor Detroit 4. The event takes place on April 13th and 14th at St. Clair College in Windsor. The second was First Robotics. For more information and inspiration, you can check out firstroboticscanada.org. The two tracks that you heard in the episode today are Highway 26 by Foxhart Fishman and How Deep Is Down by Baby God. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so at Jacob McCourt. And to find all of the episodes of No Coaster Needed, you can go to NoCoasterNeeded.com or your favorite podcasting service. Thanks for listening.